But of course, like most Vancouver people, I stayed up late last night to watch the Canucks uh, struggle. There's a good word, struggle, against uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, which happened to coincide with the extremely long conservative leadership convention. As it turns out, the third ballot announcement of Aaron O'Toole as the winner of the Conservative Party leadership race came mere moments after the end of the third period of the Canucks game. So for us, watching, uh, it was it was hockey. Unfortunately, it wasn't terribly entertaining hockey, but at least it was live and it was it was going on. Whereas uh, those watching, watching the conservative leadership race, watching an empty screen for how long? Five and a half hours? I doubt that somehow. But it all timed out perfectly for Canucks fans here in this time zone and nowhere else in Canada. Here to talk about this, uh, the uh, Mr. O'Toole, as the new leader of the opposition is Zane Velji, political analyst and co-founder of Everyone's Canada. Zane joining us this morning from Calgary. Zane, hello, welcome. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, because I kept fairly normal sleeping hours last night, Zane. I suspect your, your time zone came came as a as a benefit to you. Look <laughs> it at was, that. It was a total bonus last night, no question. I have a lot of family and friends in Toronto, and a guest in Toronto who's going to join us in another hour or so to talk about this too. Uh, and it was way past his bedtime. What a bizarre night, Zane. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, if, if we focus in on the process for a second uh, and listen, let's let's not make the process the headline because there is a headline that came out of this, which is Aaron O'Toole. But to be clear, the process was extremely grim. And it's not so much so the fact that it was the ballots that had been shredded and had to be reissued. It was really the fact that the Conservative Party kept, you know, lingering with the 90 minutes here, 30 minutes here, 45 minutes here, and then lo and behold, the political class, so to speak, is waiting seven hours, and and the media is struggling, you know, God bless them, but struggling to fill airways with redundant commentary when nothing's happening. So this process really is is, is a blemish. I don't think it'll affect the overall brand of the Conservative Party, but there's a few people that will say, well, remember, you know, they want to run a country, and they can barely open some envelopes. Like, what's going on here? Uh, That might be a footnote to to, uh, what's obviously the headline here, which is Aaron O'Toole. Well, you know what I kind of enjoyed in a perverse sort of way, Zane, was watching our colleagues the very high-priced help on TV <laughs> actually earned their money for a change. They had to they had to work and pad and fill and and fill and and fill some more for hours and hours and hours. They actually earned their money last night. They got very angry too. They were they were put off because well their their schedules had been interrupted and they they got quite perturbed. It had of course it wasn't it wasn't de- deliberate, but by the end of the evening they were starting to make it feel like that they they had been put out. And it was comical, frankly. They did an okay job. I was bouncing back and forth between the various networks, of course, to varying degrees of anger and discomfort, and some younger reporters doing an absolutely fabulous job of filling those long waiting periods. But it was, the, it was I think, uh, as you say, Zane, uh, the, the, the bottom line is going to be, look, these guys can't even... How many months did they have to organize this? The fact is they had the, the gathering in a hotel, and Zane, there were no people. I mean, there were the, the candidates and their, their teams, and then there were the vote counters. There were no delegates, there were no drunks in the hallways, there were no distractions, and they had months to prepare. This is nuts. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, listen, I, I, I want to be charitable because 
there's so much that goes on to producing a leadership result. You know, even in what I'd call peace times, non-COVID times, you've seen several leaderships from across varying party lines, Mulcair, McGinty, Jason Kenney, you know, others have been delayed by several hours. I think the issue here of what actually compounded the problem was to say, hey, we've got a problem. And I think people would have been fine with it and, and, and uh, just, you know, uh, allowed themselves to say, let's tune back in when they say they're going to be back in five hours sure. rather than having this 90-minute lingering delay just stringing people along. So I think, you know, listen, I, I think the, the political class, you and I, uh, political observers are gonna are gonna remember this, etch this into our memory, use it as a bit of a punching bag. But I think for the the average Joe who's tuning in, saying Aaron who just won, that's exactly going to be the story. Which is Aaron O'Toole now has won and now needs to have a very rapid campaign to start defining himself to Canadians. Well, it's important too to recognize Zane that prior to the convention, actually, or the uh, the leadership. Uh, 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 show uh, this weekend went to air the pollsters were looking around the country asking people you know days or hours before the selection of the leader who would your choice be and by the way are you even aware of the fact that there's a conservative leadership race going on so for those people who were aware well then i like mckay or i like o'toole or a lot of them surprisingly said i like leslin lewis i liked her too but 47 percent of all people asked read a across Canada, didn't even have a clue there was a leadership race on Zane. Yeah, and I mean, part of that is not surprising. You know, by structure and design, leadership races are uh, are meant to speak to a very specific audience, i.e. the members of a party, sure. right? They are, they are not necessary, and especially in this race. You know, one of the observations I'd make is that this race, it seemed like everyone had the same relative strategy, which was, let's make this about mobilizing our existing members, ensuring we get high yield and high efficiency and participation with who's already in the tent, rather than making this a campaign of trying to incubate new members. You know, I'd say the one person who tried to do that the most was probably Peter McKay as being a a relic of the PC party. But I think one thing this proved was that this was a true blue uh, election. They wanted to engage, mobilize, hear out their conservative base. And in the conservative base, there's a disproportionate social conservative base, which we can talk about. But to your point, Sterling, this is really an exercise for a very small audience, not for the gen pop, which comes at a cost. And the cost is you know, as of whatever a.m. Uh, Monday morning, mm-hmm. uh, the majority of Canadians still have no idea who won. And even if it would have been Peter McKay, would he have had a little bit more name recognition? Certainly. But not to the point that, that I think us as, as the chattering class expect these people to have when, when they're etched into our memory and part of our, you know, day-to-day uh, conversations about these things. So, you know, whoever it would have been, they're now going to have to go out and aggressively start branding themselves as to who they are, what they care about. You know, Aaron O'Toole has some work to do to ensure that the social conservatives that kind of pushed him over the top in this leadership race do not necessarily brand him as 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 that to uh, to the peril of someone like Andrew Scheer last sure. election. So there's work to be done. Uh, but you're absolutely right. These things are not meant for the general population. They're meant for a very small, hyper engaged subset of. Uh, of those weird people that hold political memberships in this country. And, and that's what this was for. Friends, now the real work begins. We could be into an election campaign as soon as this fall. But as more than 260,000 passionate conservatives have already shown in this record-breaking leadership amidst a pandemic, 
the Conservative Party will be ready for the next election. And we will win the next election. (laughs) To the millions of Canadians that are still up, that I'm meeting tonight for the first time, good morning. I'm Aaron O'Toole. You're going to be seeing and hearing a lot from me in the coming weeks and months. But I want you to know from the start that I'm here to fight for you and your family. Part of the acceptance speech last night of MP for Durham, Ontario, and the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Aaron O'Toole. Zane Velji is with us talking about the Conservative leadership announcement last night, ever so delayed as it was. Apparently, Zane, we're now learning this morning about the nature of the the delay. The scrutineers, they say they had counted about 97% of the votes, and then one particular batch went through the machine that opens the envelopes, and so they can get at the ballots and the envelope opening machine started to slice up the ballots and they literally had to go through each one and scotch tape them back together because the ballot wasn't just an X. It was a ranked ballot with the several names on it. So they really had to perform surgery on several thousand of them. And when you take a look at that kind of a malfunction that probably cost a 15 cent screw to fix uh, and, and a delay of several hours, uh, the the bottom line is a pretty embarrassing scenario for anybody to be caught in, particularly with the entire focus of the nation's news media on them for the entire process. Uh, not their not their shiningest night. Mr. O'Toole, by the way, Zane, is 47, the same age as the Prime Minister, uh, and yet he doesn't come across as youthful and vigorous as Mr. Trudeau. What do you make of that? I actually don't think that's a bad thing if you're the Conservatives right now. You know, there's, there's a case to be made, and political parties try to do this often. They see the template of what succeeded, and they try to replicate it for themselves. And often, the strategy of last time is not the strategy that wins it for you this time. Uh, and because it's, it's voters have bought a certain package, they often want to reject that package, uh, whether it be four years, eight years, seven years in a minority government, whenever you know they're in that situation. And so for them to have someone that contrasts Justin Trudeau, that kind of looks like the adult in the room, despite having, you know, being the same age, 47, 48, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. so like, um, in the same age bracket, but look like the adult in the room, be a, you know, a fierce sort of lawyer from back from from the back uh, uh, the background, the pedigree, uh, have this ability to articulate that's more than sheer, but not a a sort of grandiose sort of over the top way of communicating. I think that's quite compelling. And if you're a voter right now and you perhaps rejected the Justin Trudeau model of both leadership and communication, you're certainly not going to go to someone like Jagmeet Singh, both from a policy, perhaps even from a leadership perspective, who espouses some of those same qualities. But a figure who says, you know, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm up to. I'm not here to be a star. I'm here to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. I have a very specific background and, and a way to hold the government's uh, feet to the fire. I feel like that that's the type of leadership that uh, that perhaps could win it. You know, one of the biggest regrets, if I can just add a footnote, an editorial curveball, is that I feel like for the NDP, this would have been a perfect time to have someone like Tom Mulcair as their leader, who espouses some of those same sentiments, right? Competent, not 
super flashy, like good legislator. You know, for Aaron O'Toole comes with that same background, both held, held as a minister of veterans affairs, but also in opposition. So I feel like there is a playbook here for the conservatives from the true blue side, but also from the leadership side, which would make Aaron O'Toole quite palatable, especially if you're kind of, you know, lukewarm to getting cooler on the Justin Trudeau leadership format that yeah. he's been presenting over the last number of years. Interesting stuff. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the demise of Mr. McKay, a repudiation of the old school conservative uh, party. This is this is Stephen Harper's version of the party. McKay represented the old party. And I don't think uh, that was that was enough. Uh, uh, clearly, the final numbers speak for themselves. There was a significant margin of victory. And uh, off we go with the, the new look, except Mr. O'Toole is going to be, the, certainly the liberals, and you can bet the farm on this one, Zane, the liberals are going to go after the conservative, the new conservative leader, uh, in exactly the same way they did the old one on his social conservative connections and values. Mr. Scheer um, was terrible, absolutely terrible, and got sucked into that vortex and got lost and, and didn't need to, couldn't handle it. What about O'Toole? O'Toole, I think, is a bit different, and I think the liberals have to be really careful here, right? Uh, this was one of the lessons that we learned in Alberta, is when you start demonizing the opponent as being some sort of monster on, on social issues or a set of policies, and they just slightly overperform or have a modicum of decency or humanity, electorate stops believing you. And I think because they suck tr- uh, sheer into the trap doesn't mean they can suck and name trap. We learned that here with Jason Kenney, right? You mm-hmm. attack him as being so social conservative, and then he comes across as extremely reasonable, has this really interesting way of modulating and moderating himself, and the electorate stops believing you. They say that this is just a political game. Even though you have evidentiary truth to what you are trying to say, right? It, 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 the electorate just stops believing you because they feel like it's spin from both sides. This is where the liberals need to be careful. The re- I'll repeat the same lesson. The recipe that won you last time will not be the same one that gets you there this time. It's really convenient to think that Aaron O'Toole is an extension of Andrew Scheer, but he's much more textured than that, and I'd say he's much more savvy than that. A few things to know. Number one, during this leadership campaign, he's the one that outright put up environmental issues, saying we need to be at the front end of environmental issues if we want any chance of viability. Right. He's also said he'd march in pride parades going forward. Mm-hmm. So he's not Andrew Scheer in that regard. And finally, Sterling, he comes from Ontario. And one of the biggest battlegrounds that we're going to have is Ontario's 905 region. And by seeing his really impressive Quebec performance yesterday in the leadership race. He might even be a player in the island outside of Montreal and Quebec. So good luck to the liberals in the sense, you know, applying the same strategy. I feel like it's right to a certain degree, but don't think that you can get Aaron O'Toole in the Travis, he is going to do everything he can to ensure he's his own man and not an extension of of Andrew Shear or anyone else that came before him uh, to, to fall into those traps uh, like they have in the past. Yeah, his French of the four is the best. Not saying a lot, Zane, but it is definitely right, right. the be- best of the four. And he's going to have to work on that, but he has some time. But if Mr. Trudeau has his way, not a great deal of time. Well, we've only had about 30 seconds left here, and there's a lot of speculation about what the how this is going to play out when the throne speech happens. There'll be a confidence vote, uh, vote rather, a budget in March. A lot of people talking about a, an election next June. What's your take on all of that? If I am Aaron O'Toole right now, I'm spending 90% of my time defining myself to the public, who I am, introducing myself. The eyes of the uh, of, of the collective population will be put into 
this throne speech. So don't use it as a way to meander. Have a surgical strike about the policy and then use the rest of the airtime that you get to define yourself. You've got a long time to start figuring out what you are and what you need to do. I uh, don't need to rush it because of Trudeau's agenda. Um, I, I would have right. one. Sur- I have to yeah. leave it there. But you're right. People don't know who this guy is. Zane, yeah. he, he has yeah. to let Canada know, hey, I'm the guy and here's who I am. Thanks for this. Great to talk to you. We appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise. Let's talk about a potential snap election in British Columbia now, and this thing quickly becoming the worst-kept secret in the province. Premier John Horgan appears on the verge of triggering this election right in the middle of a surging pandemic. There is an emergency meeting tonight, 5 p.m., of the NDP Governing Council, and you can bet this will be at the top of the agenda, a snap election here in British Columbia. Let's talk about it now. What a great guest I've got for you. Norman Spector, he's a former constitutional advisor to a former premier in our province, Bill Bennett, a former prime minister of our country, Brian Mulroney. More recently, he was an advisor to Andrew Weaver and the BC Green Party in their governing agreement with the NDP. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Norman. Good morning, Michael. Thanks a lot for coming on. You wrote a really fascinating open letter to the Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin here that was published on the front page of the Times Colonist newspaper in Victoria yesterday, urging her to be cautious if uh, Horgan comes calling here and asking for an early election here. What is your message here to the Lieutenant Governor? Why did you write this letter here to her? Well, the message is uh, fairly simple. I'm essentially asking her to do her job. Uh, and I'm telling her that she has an option. Uh, and uh, I set out uh, the reasons uh, why I think she should uh, uh, ask Premier Horgan, should he request an election, which looks like is about to happen, uh, to go away and think about it. And what she, what she should be asking him to think about is whether uh, he should be breaking the law by calling an election now. How would he be breaking the law? If well, he did the that? law, uh, the Constitution Act of British Columbia sets the next election date right. for October of next year. Right. And in fact, it's Mr. Horgan who set that date. So it's a law that he, his MLAs, and the entire legislature passed. Right. Uh, and he's going to essentially ignore it yeah, if one of the, the rumors one of the, are correct. One of the ironies there is that the, the fixed election law that we have in our province is to avoid just the, exactly these type of shenanigans where you'd have a premier trying to trigger an election for a electoral purely partisan advantage. That's exactly right. And it yeah. was originally enacted uh, by Gordon Campbell's government in 2001, I believe. Right. But Mr. Horgan made it his own by... Uh, setting the date, and it was unanimously approved. So everybody agreed with this, and it really is uh, one of the reasons that British Columbia politics has changed from being the laughingstock of Canada, which it was uh, in the last century, to now being seen as a model. So it was one of the characteristics, having a fixed election date and, and respecting it, and governments since have respected it. So uh, the lieutenant governor is the one of the bulwarks, the custodians of our democracy. She represents the crown, her majesty, and she is the boss. And she, one of her duties is to be the final, final appeal to uh, to you know maintain the integrity of our democracy. And the rule of law is an essential aspect of that democracy. Second, she could be within her constitutional uh, role 
to advise uh, Premier Horgan that reneging on his signature on a signed commitment that that uh, all MLAs signed and that Mr. Horgan and uh, Mr. Weaver presented to Government House immediately after signing it uh, before uh, the current Governor General's predecessor ca- called on Mr. Horgan rather than Christy Clark to form government. Right. Uh, despite the fact that Christy Clark had won more seats, she called on Mr. Horgan. Uh, on the basis that he'd be able to maintain the confidence of the House. And in that document, in that signed agreement, Mr. Horgan committed not to ask for an election until and unless he was defeated on a confidence motion, which has not happened and is not likely to happen for many, many months. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's, this is a government that's been pretty, pretty darn stable here for three years. It's passed every single confidence vote in the legislature. It's passed every single budget. It doesn't even look like there's going to be a fall sitting of the legislature. So there's no imminent threat to this government falling. So there would appear to be no, no need at all to call this election right now. Would you agree? Yes. I mean, there's only one reason that he'd be calling an election. Well, actually, two reasons. One is that. He fears that things might get a lot worse right. yeah. uh, before they get better, sure. worse from the health point of view and worse from an economic point of view, and he'd rather uh, go to an election now. Secondly, the, 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 the way that the, the pandemic has been managed successfully in this province, in large measure due to the fact that it's been a nonpartisan approach. He's had the Liberals, the Greens, even the press, very much on side for the way the pandemic has been managed. But at this point, his priority appears to be, and this is very cynical, his priority seems to be having an election, even though at the same time, Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry are asking us, asking British Columbians, and particularly young British Columbians, to reduce their social contacts. (laughs) It doesn't seem to me to be the, the optimal time to have an election. Right. Speaking to constitutional expert Norman Spector here about the potential for a snap election in British Columbia, you're right that the public has given him great credit, I think, for his the government's management through this crisis and this pandemic. And it's one of the reasons why he's riding so high in the polls right now. I mean, I've seen some opinion polls that uh, I've never seen the NDP this high ever in, in public estimation in British Columbia. So one poll where they're over 50 percent support. I've never seen that ever. Is that, is that why he wants to go? I mean, he's looking at those polling numbers, and he, like you said, it's not going to get better than this, so he wants to go now. It's, not, it's, it's unlikely to get better than this uh, politically, and uh, I think he fears that it's unlikely to get better in terms of deaths and yeah. case numbers which are rising and hospitalizations and ICUs which are rising yeah. and the economy. Look, Quebec has replaced about 97% of the jobs that it has lost during the pandemic. We've replaced about 60%. Mm. So what he wants to be able to do, having lied to the lieutenant governor about uh, not calling an election, he's now itching to lie to voters about an economic recovery that we're far from uh, seeing. And he, rather than completing the job and uh, being tested at the end of the day, he'd rather take the midterm exam before any yeah. of the results are really in. 
Is, is that risky? I mean, do you think he risks throwing away all that public goodwill that he's built up here during this pandemic? If, if the public perceives this is nothing but a naked power grab, that's all it is, it, and it potentially backfires on him. I think that is a risk. Uh, he's probably calculating that right now. I think he hasn't made the final decision, but uh, he's very close to making the final decision. But, you know, look, I've I've seen a lot of elections in my lifetime, two, one at the provincial level and one at the federal level, where uh, while I've never been involved in an election campaign, I was the deputy minister at the time. So I had a pretty good perspective on the federal election in 1988, the B.C. election in 1983. I have never seen a premier or a prime minister, looking to go to the polls on the basis of a message that I lied to you to, <laughs> to get the job, and I'm going to keep lying to you <laughs> to, to, to keep that job. I think the opposition will have a golden opportunity to say the following. Look, he's already lied to you. He's already showed that he's a cynical politician, like the worst uh, uh, that, uh, that, that we've seen uh, or can can imagine he's no better than any other politician why would you believe a, a single word he says why would you re- yeah. believe a single word in his poli- in his platform so yeah. i think the opposition have that opportunity and i mean that's the kind of evaluation of risk that Mr. Horgan will have to do right now. Yeah, no, it is a great talking point for his opponents, for sure, because that agreement that he signed with the Green Party that, that you helped negotiate as an advisor to Andrew Weaver, then the leader of the Green Party, was, was signed with much pomp and ceremony and backslapping and... Uh, you know, and he's and he's going clearly going against the very word of that agreement. It says right in there, no snap election call, and it appears that's precisely what he's going to do. It, it, when we get back to the the lieutenant governor, if he goes and talks to the lieutenant governor and asks her for an election, is she not bound by constitutional laws and convention in our country and our province to say yes to it? Basically, that she's required to take the advice of her first minister, which in this case is John Horgan, and if he asks for an election, she basically has to say yes. At this stage in the mandate, so uh, years after an election, you're right. She has absolutely no option at the end of the day. If the premier insists on an election, she must grant it. However, she does have an option. One of her, uh, she has the right, as, as every viewer of The Crown on Netflix knows, the, pre- <laughs> the premier or prime minister has a duty to keep the head of state, the lieutenant governor or the uh, governor general, informed, constantly informed. That's why Winston Churchill would be meeting with the queen. He wasn't meeting with her to have a glass of, a, a glass of gin or anything or a cup of tea. He was keeping her informed. Right. And the head of state, the lieutenant governor in this case, has the right to warn, to advise, to encourage, and to make her views known. So the the lieutenant governor has an option in this case. She can remind the premier of the sanctity of the rule of law. She can remind the premier of the sanctity of his signature on the document that was presented at Government House, which was the basis of his forming government. She can remind the premier of the nonpartisan nature of the pandemic management. She can remind the premier of the innovation of CASA, which she herself has praised as an example of cross-party teamwork, which we've not seen, certainly in this province, very much of, in this famously polarized province, and which in Canada, 
uh, is an innovation. This is really the first example of a signed agreement in a minority parliament uh, that has brought great stability and great comity to the legislature of the most polarized province in Canada. Yeah. And I think Horgan risks throwing it all away by what he's up to here. Norman Spector, good advice, I think, for the lieutenant governor. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. All right. That is Norman Spector. He's a constitutional expert. He's been an advisor to past premiers, past prime ministers in our country, uh, saying that, hey, the lieutenant governor, if Horgan comes calling here, should maybe tell him to go back and have a rethink on this. Well, let's talk about back to school now. It is the first full week of classes for BC kids at back to school. I've got a uh, son in high school, public high school myself. Let's talk about back to school right now with my guest, Patty Backus, Georgia Strait education columnist, former chair of the Vancouver School Board. Patty, it's nice to have you on again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you for doing that. I, you're very active on social media, especially Twitter. I encourage people to give you a follow there because you're very um, interactive with a lot of teachers and other people working in, in the system. What are you hearing from people about the first full week of back to school here? Teachers, parents, kids, what are you hearing there? Well, it's, it's been a, obviously a really rough start to the school year. Uh, this was the first sort of regular week of classes. And, and uh, you know, I heard lots of good things. that Teachers are really excited to have kids back. They want to be back yeah. in class. I heard that parents have been, for the most part, very respectful and supportive and really trying to be patient and understand uh, the new protocols and supportive of, of, of teachers and administrators who are, who are doing that work. Um, and I think a lot of students are very happy to be back. However, you know, we started this week with, of course, this terrible smoke. So, you know, one of the layers of protection that uh, Dr. Henry has talked about and, and Education Minister Rob Fleming is, is ventilation and getting kids outdoors as much as possible. So teachers, I think, had been hoping, particularly through September and probably parts of October, to be able to do a lot of their uh, learning outside with students to take advantage of the safer environment that the outdoor air provides. And of course, they wake up to realize that, no, we're now being told to keep our, our windows closed yeah. and stay indoors because right. of the dangerous air. So that, that you know, through that, that layer of kind of out the, out the window, pardon the pun, uh, in the first week. And, of course, I'm hearing just from many, many uh, teachers, support workers, parents, and students that, that the, the cleaning protocols seem to be really inconsistent across school districts and schools. And there are a lot of concerns about a lack of proper cleaning supplies, still some lack of clarity around who is responsible for cleaning those high-touch surfaces uh, during the school day and, 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 and even having the appropriate materials to do that. I have teachers have been told they've been given one cleaning cloth and no cleanser and uh, limits on hand sanitizer. So lots of concerns there. Um, uh, uh, okay. Many of this, of course, uh, the Minister Fleming said there would be masks available for those who wanted them, and many schools don't have those. They haven't arrived. So there mm. was some confusion again and, and other different messaging around the use of masks in schools. I have some teachers telling me they've been advised by their principals not to encourage mask use, that they have to stay very neutral. So so that's causing a lot of frustration. Okay, well. let, me, let, let me, Patty, let me play this for you. This is, uh, of course, the teachers union has expressed a lot of concerns about back to school. Uh, Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation, she was on with Linda Steele yesterday. And here she is explaining uh, what teachers are most worried about. Well, we still have, you know, deep concerns around the lack of preventative uh, measures that are in um, classrooms. And so physical distancing is still not 
uh, an option. And when you layer on that the uh, situation with the fires and, you know, a, a full, you know, more than a third of the province is impacted um, in terms of the air quality. Um, and so, you know, no open windows, uh, no ability for students to go outside, especially those students who have respiratory issues. And so, you know, it's like a bit of a pressure cooker in classrooms right now, especially those classrooms with 30 or more students. And, you know, that's thousands of classrooms across the province. The masking policy continues to be an issue. Um, and there's a lot of confusion around that. Okay, Terry Mooring there, the president of the Teachers Union, outlining some of, of her concerns. Uh, my guest, Patty Back, is in some ways, I guess, Patty, I'd be surprised if there were not some of these bumps in the road and problems uh, during the early part of the return to school. But would, would you say that the problems are antici- mostly anticipated or would most people be happy? Because I don't know, I'm hearing a lot from teachers and parents online who tell me that they, they're pretty happy with the way things have gone so far. Oh, absolutely. People, you know, recognize, I think for the most part, everyone is doing the very best they can. Um, But I do think some of these problems were anticipated. I think I pointed some of them out er early on in the summer when plans came out. You know, Rob Fleming came out in the end of July with a plan that had really everyone pretty well going back full time, with a few exceptions. And he had to sort of backtrack on that as there was backlash, um, because that people could see right away there won't be it will be impossible to physically distance in these classrooms teachers well, yeah. that out in the summer we knew that and 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 you know the cohort thing an interesting twist on that that i'm hearing is that because of the way the high schools are trying to plan their courses and some electives you can have more than students from more than one cohort in a classroom uh, but they're supposed to try to distance from each other so what happens uh, according to some teachers who contacted me is students are sitting even closer together as they're trying to separate into cohorts. So they're even closer together than they would have been without the cohort model, which is a concern as well, and often not wearing masks in in unventilated classrooms with windows closed, which, you know, we know is probably the most risky situation for any of us to be in, is in a crowded crowded room without ventilation. Right, and the windows windows shut because of the smoke. I I think that uh, overall the the plan has certainly not been perfect. Uh, One of the things that occurs to me is uh, if you've got a government here that is more concentrated on a potential snap election call uh, than they were on the success of a, a comprehensive back to school plan. That, that's, you know, this government right now, I think, is really focused on uh, short term politics right now uh, with a potential election looming. Let me ask you about um, COVID 19 and the potential for outbreaks in school. And here's Terry Mooring again, the union president, speaking to Linda yesterday about how this is going to be disclosed and reported if there is an outbreak in a school. It's important that information is freely available, and we know there is no possible way, just like we can't physically distance in classrooms, we also can't keep that information. That information is not going to stay quiet. It's, you know, it's, it's going to get out. Okay, how, do you know, Patty, how this is going to work? If there is an outbreak or a case at a school, is this all going to be publicly disclosed now? Well, I, I heard the Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday said apparently in a conference call discussion that there would be coming, there is a, a, a platform coming out that will have all the health authorities reporting out uh, cases in schools. And there seems to be some changing semantics around, you know, a cluster versus an outbreak versus a case and, and what gets reported and who needs to know. And up until yesterday, my understanding was it would be the health authorities would 
go through their processes like they would with any a case and decide who needs to be told and direct that response from the school district. However, I saw a superintendent of the Surrey School District, Jordan Tinney, out very proactively notifying families of cases that had been detected in Surrey schools where I heard of cases in other districts that I haven't been able to confirm because they're not being publicly disclosed, uh, where where multiple members of staff told me there was a staff member who tested positive, but it hadn't been reported. So I do think we need consistency. I think parents have a right to as much information as possible in order to make informed decisions about whether they want to send their kids to school. I agree with you. I would know. I would want to know, too, as, as a parent, if there is a case in, in my child's school, I would like to know as much information and disclosure as possible there, um, for sure. You had an a, interesting series of tweets about homework and noticing that, particularly for high school kids, a lot of them getting snowed under with a ton of homework there. What, what are you hearing? Yeah, well, in high schools, because you know, many of them have gone to either a quarter model where you take two courses for a quarter of the year at a time and you have the class every day. Some I think are even shorter. I think uh, School District 62, I think that's Saanich, I think they're doing uh, one course at a time for five weeks. So they have to pack a lot into that time. And if it's a course, you know, a math or a science that has a lot lot of material that has to be covered and mastered to move on to the next to get through it um in some cases i understand some kids are getting a lot of really tough homework and and you know some of those courses if you're struggling in class uh you're not going to be able to figure it out at home at the end of the day and uh some of the examples i've seen have been pretty staggering um i don't think that's consistent across the province obviously it varies but that is the challenge and not only the homework amount is just how much gets covered each day if you only have five weeks to teach a course that's normally taught over a year if a student is away from class for two or three days because they're having you know symptoms of covid or trouble with the smoke they're going to miss an awful lot Uh, so that's a real challenge for teachers and for students and you know i don't know there's no easy answer but it's just one of those uh, things that we're seeing as a result of this really tough situation yeah. everybody is in. That is really a tough one for sure because they have gone to this sort of compressed school year where kids are just taking two courses at a time, or as you mentioned, in one case, even just one at a time. And yeah, of course, when you have a compressed system like that, you're going to have a, a ton of work to do in a short time. Let's talk about speeding on our roads and highways now. And if you get a ticket for speeding, that is never a pleasant experience. But is the fine sufficient to deter lead foot drivers from speeding on our roads and highways in a dangerous manner? Some city councils in our province calling for a review of speeding fines in B.C. They want the fines cranked up including my next guest, Carl Jensen. He is a counselor with Central Saanich on Vancouver Island. That's near Victoria. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Counselor, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Okay, let's talk about speeding. So you think speeding is cheap, right? You think the penalty is what? It's not sufficient. Uh, Mike, speed is, speeding is too affordable right now. It's, it's, it's something that with the current rates of fines, people are willing to take the risk to get where they're going in their minds quicker by speeding and and that's in my mind and our council's mind due to fines that are currently too low okay let's talk about how much the fines are right now so let's say what what is the what is the penalty for speeding if you get a ticket right now so right now there's a a series of levels for up to 20 kilometers over the speed limit it's a fine of 138 dollars yeah for 
20 to 40 kilometers, 196, 41 to 60, 368. And if it's over 60, it's $438 right now. Right. Okay. So for people listening to this and they're thinking, well, okay, is that high or low? In your estimation, that's too low, right? Well, I think it's too low because it's uh. it's one of the things that is, I, ever since being elected into office in 2011, I've constantly heard from my, my, my constituents, my residents in Central Sandwich, they're concerned about the speeds. And it's it's everywhere from a residential street to, to the provincial highways and roadways that, that speeding is, is a concern and, and it's something that, uh, that, is, that is not stopping. I mean, if, if you spend any time on Twitter, the, the, the tweets from right across the province in terms of, of examples of what they're catching people doing. Uh, just this week, Vancouver PD, September 13th, stopped a vehicle doing 104 kilometers an hour in a 30-kilometer-an-hour construction Ooh. zone. Yeah. I mean, that's the cone zone. I mean, I, I don't know how you could miss the speed limit. Central Saanich Police clocked a motorcycle doing 144 kilometers an hour in 80 zone. North Vancouver, August, April 28th, driver doing 167 kilometers an hour in an 80-kilometer-hour zone. I mean, it's, yeah. it, that's twice the speed limit. But, but the one that I think really kind of piqued my interest even more than the other was uh, back in December, they did... A, patch of uh, road uh, kind of uh, traffic enforcement on the Malahat Highway over here in Victoria. Island residents know it well. During a five-hour period, the Integrated Road Safety Unit impounded 19 vehicles for doing at least 40 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. So it's it's not a one-off. It's it's just widespread, uh, I would say, abuse of the speed speed limits. And I think it's because the speed fines currently, they're not enough of a deterrent. They're not enough to cause a driver to think twice about trying to save maybe a couple of seconds in that trip to the grocery store or to work. Okay, do you think it's getting worse? One, one, of, the, one of the thoughts that goes through my mind is that during this pandemic, we've had less traffic. I think traffic is beginning build, building back to more normal levels, but we have seen sort of less traffic on the roads and with, with the roads wide open in some cases, I wonder if that is maybe a temptation for people to maybe put their foot down and, and drive faster with less traffic on the road. But in your experience, do you think it's getting worse and we're seeing more speeding? Well, I think it's, uh, I would say, I think with the, with the advances in social media, it's, I would say we're hearing about it more and that's where we're, we're hearing about it more in real time. And I, yeah. and I think conversely with the, with the current roads, I think on the flip side of potentially less people on the roads, but we've also seen an increase in the amount of people using active transportation. There's a lot more people on the roads, on foot, on bikes. And, and certainly during the, I would say during the more heavy uh, pandemic lockdown period, you had a lot of people, there was a lot more families out and about because people were at home more. So you've got, I would say, possibly the roads being not as busy, but at the same time, more people on them. And, mm. and, and you can also look at it from the, the whole, as we, as we encourage people to, to get out more, exercise more, using other alternatives to, to being in the car. Uh, so certainly it's there. And, and if, if anything, quite frankly, with less cars on the road, there should be less traffic. So yeah. the need to speed should be less okay. uh, because there's, there's more room on the road already. Okay, when we take a look at, speaking to Councillor uh, Carl Jensen uh, about the potential for uh, increased speeding fines in British Columbia. So if we take a look at the existing penalties for speeding, $138, as you mentioned, the minimum fine. That's just for going like a touch over the speed limit. Uh, if you're going between 21 and 40 clicks over the limit, I guess a more 
a, a pretty common offense, $196. How much do you say it's too low? How much do you think those fines should be? Well, I think we saw with the province, the province recognized with the distracted driving fines that they weren't sufficient. And right. and I think we saw as a result the review of those and, and an increase of those were where they did ratchet those fines up. And I, and I think they, the province did a great job of recognizing between that and, and then the enforcement at the at the uh, police department level was it, this, the province made a statement that that this is something we want to take seriously and we want you to take it seriously as well. And, and I think that was noticeable. Yeah, like so, distract, distracted driving is 368 bucks plus four penalty points on your record, right? Which is a lot. Exactly. And, and I yeah. think that's where you start to realize and, and drivers then make a choice. I, I, with this with this resolution going to UBCM, I'm suggesting that we, tr- we we try, if the province were to dramatically increase the prices, make speeding a less attractive choice. Because I think right now it's at $138 or $196. It's, it's yeah. a, an acceptable risk that drivers are willing to take right now. Well, do you, do you think it should be the same penalty as distracted driving then for, for speeding, like 368 bucks for going, say, how much, how much over the speed limit? Like, do you think that would be a reasonable penalty? I, I think that would certainly get people's attention. I, this, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the motion, I'm really say, suggesting that the province comes up with that. I mean, I think at that point, in terms of setting the, the provincial policy, happy to have them take a look at it. And this is the area where, where often people say, oh, you're in local government, you should stay in your swim lane. So I would say let them come up with, and that's why the, the, the resolution is, is kind of open in, in terms of allowing it to be interpreted by the province in terms of what would they think would, would be appropriate. Right. Uh, ultimately, it, it, despite the policy being set at the provincial level, enforcement and where you hear the stories comes back to the local government. And, and that's why local government officials around the province are hearing about this from their residents. Right, right. Okay. But of course, if you get a speeding ticket, especially a serious one, it's not just the fine for the ticket. I mean, you'd have the fine that we've talked about, but there are other penalties as well, right? Like you'd have a, a driver risk premium, potentially uh, penalty points on your insurance. If your car is impounded, uh, you'd have the towing and the storage fee, which can be like 400 bucks, increased to your ICBC. I mean, it starts to add up, doesn't it? I would agree. It, it, it adds up. But at the same time, it's, it's not enough to prevent people from doing it. And I think the okay. fact that it's, it's not a it's not a rare occurrence. I mean, we don't have it's it's not like we're hearing about the the once a month supercar driver on the Sea of Sky Highway who's who's taken the new Lamborghini out for a test drive. And it's not that it's it's I think you, you would find if watching Twitter or, or or Facebook, it's it's a regular occurrence and and it's all drivers. It's it's not just that. So I think yes, it's it's substantial for some, but it's not enough of a deterrent at this point okay. because you, it's still the frequency is still demonstrating. It's it, people are still willing to to take the risk. My guest is Councillor Carl Jensen from Central Saanich, and they have a motion calling on the provincial government to increase speeding fines and penalties.